the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, February 22nd. It has been a jam-packed second month of the 2023 season, truly across levels in the tennis world. Of course, our Cracked Rackets team was so fortunate to be able to broadcast two of the best weekends on the college tennis calendar. We had the Division I Men's and Women's National Indoor Championships for you exclusively on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. It was such a pleasure to have a front row seat as both UNC, TCU captured back-to-back national indoor championships. However, given the focus we've had on the college tennis world of late, I was not able to offer the assortment of takes I accumulated while watching last week's four tour-level events unfold. Of course, those events happened in Rotterdam, Doha, Delray Beach, and Buenos Aires, and I thought each of those events offered compelling and dare I say significant tennis that we should certainly factor into our assessments moving forward. As such, I want to offer all of you listeners today a wide assortment of takes from all the action we saw unfold last week. Of course, I'm well aware it's another jam-packed week in the pro tennis world. We've got five tour-level events happening this week, three on the men's side, two for the women. Our first 1,000-level event of the season, of course, happening in Dubai on the women's side. As such, it's actually going to be a multi-week focused podcast. On this show, I want to offer my thoughts again on three of the events we saw happen last week, those events in Rotterdam, Doha, and Delray Beach. I want to offer some thoughts on the action we saw unfold in Dubai here this week as well, as I've been fortunate enough to be broadcasting some of those matches in my capacity for Tennis Channel this week. But again, Given how much is happening in the tennis world, I am guaranteeing all of you a two-mini break Wednesday as later on in the day I'm going to be joined by Crack Rackets contributor and my dear friend David Gertler to focus specifically on the South American clay court swing. So you notice I didn't say I was going to talk about Buenos Aires, the return of Carlos Alcaraz to the winner circle here on this show. I'm going to save that topic for David Gertler, who I know has been watching everything that's unfolded over the past month in South America on the clay. So again, it's going to be a two mini break Wednesday in case I was confusing there in my thought process. I know that's going to happen from time to time. Feels like It's been busy times, we'll just say, here at Cracked Racket. So I'm trying to keep my brain organized, trying to keep my thoughts organized as well. To summarize what I just tried to enunciate to all of you listeners on this show, a wide assortment of takes related to Rotterdam, Doha, Delray, and Dubai. Later on today, it will be a two-mini break Wednesday as David Gertler is going to join me to focus on everything happening in the South American ATP clay court swing. Then, of course, the rest of this week, we'll get back to our typical mini break grind. We'll talk about the five tour-level events happening specifically this week. That is the summary of what all of you listeners can expect here on Wednesday, February 22nd. And again, why do I want to talk about last week? Because I think there's a lot of meat on the bone, whether it's the return of Daniil Medvedev to the winner's circle in Rotterdam, the continued excellence of Yannick Sinner, the, I think, increasingly high-level tennis we see across the board 
on the WTA Tour, but in particular, the return of Iga, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. She dropped five games on her way to the title in Doha. Another comfortable victory over Jessica Pagula, flipping the script from the matchup we saw between the two of them in January. And then Taylor Fritz, is he a top five player now this week? I believe he is following his run to the title in Delray. You had plenty of others, um, Americans, excuse me have success in Delray Beach throughout the course of the week. And then, again, as I am broadcasting Dubai, I feel like I want to sneak in some thoughts on that event as well. This just felt like the right episode to do that. So we got a jam-packed show for all of you listeners today. Just going to be me steering the ship here on part one. Again, David Gertler going to join me on part two. Of course, the reason we can spontaneously have a two-mini break Wednesday is because of the support we get from all of you listeners and, of course, because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal for the latest and greatest equipment in the business. Go check out tennis-point.com. You'll find everything you're looking for all at the best prices and Look, when you inevitably do make a purchase, make sure you use our promo code CR15. Not only will it let them know we sent you there, but you'll get 15% off all sale items free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-Point symbol, not the spelling. Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right. A wide assortment of takes for all of you listeners today. Let's start in Rotterdam, as I do think the single most significant thing that came out of last week's action is the return of Daniil Medvedev to the winner's circle. You look for Medvedev. He was pushed right out the gates in his very first match, and I believe I discussed that match on a podcast last week, but... When he lost his first set to Alejandro Davidovich Fokina 6-4 in the round of 32, his first match of the event, there was just a disgust on Daniil Medvedev's face, a disgust with his coaching box, a disgust with himself. You could just tell that lack of a lack of confidence had sunk in given, I don't want to say his poor form because he was still a top 20 player in the world and the advanced analytics actually still really liked Daniil Medvedev, but... He had not been the Daniil Medvedev of 2019, 2020, 2021, even that start of 2022. He hadn't been that Daniil Medvedev since losing to Rafa from two sets to love up in that Australian Open final last season. And, you know, again, it's funny because he said in the press conference, the little celebration he was doing or the little hand motioning gesture thing. At first, it was sarcastic. He was mocking his coach who told him to just keep playing through his struggles, keep playing through his issues. You know, he thought those issues were going to overwhelm him after losing that first set to Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. But from there, he won eight consecutive sets. And it was a high level of competition for Daniil Medvedev in Rotterdam. Davidovich Fokina has a first-round match, no slouch. Of course, he then goes on to 2-2. Two and two. Botik van de Sinskulp saves all six break points that he faces in that match. 2-4 and four over Felix Ogier Aliasim on an indoor hardcore to Felix, who's what, 25-6 and six since the start of his run in Florence on October 10th last season for Medvedev to two and for him to only be broken once to win 73% of his first serve points, 68% of his second serve points to be able to 
use his speed and use his length to absorb, redirect the first serve, first strike of Felix Ogier Aliasim, and even when Felix was serving and volleying and taking advantage of that defensive court positioning as so many had against Daniil Medvedev, it didn't matter. Daniil Medvedev was able to continuously come up with that on-the-run excellence find, that first backhand passing shot dipped at your feet so that you have to pop up the first volley, and he uses his length, his movement so well. I don't know if there's anyone not named Novak Djokovic better at the two passing shot combination, first dipped at the feet, second hit the ball by you, then Daniil Medvedev right now on the ATP Tour. Yeah, maybe Carlos Alcaraz. I hear you all screaming it right now in in your cars or wherever you're listening to this. But I'm just saying, if you're making the short list, Daniil Medvedev's on it in terms of the two passing shot combination. And, you know, again, two and two over Botic, two and four over Felix, one and two over Grigor Dimitrov, a match where he was broken once. So let's be clear. Grigor Dimitrov held twice throughout the course of the match. You know, the depth Medvedev was finding on his return of serve and you know, again, it was funny. I was talking with one coach, and I just thought the point they made was fascinating because this coach, who was a coach of a top 100 player on the ATP Tour, was making the point to me that he actually thinks from a technical standpoint, Daniil Medvedev is flawless. And obviously, you see you see the hitch and the extreme nature of the Daniil Medvedev forehand, and you think to yourself, how could that be technically flawless when someone like Roger Federer brushes so beautifully through the forehand? Even Grigor Dimitrov, you'd think technically forehand to forehand, you'd probably give him the technical advantage over Daniil Medvedev. But the, the point this coach made is, A, Daniil Medvedev is not the quick twitch athlete that a Carlitos or a Francis Tiafo is as such the racket speed he generates. It's not going to be as pronounced as evident as those players. And, you know, B, from a contact point perspective, from a depth perspective, from the point of if your ground stroke is supposed to accomplish a high percentage ground stroke with depth, pace, that neutralizes what your opponent's trying to do. Well, from that stroke production pattern, Daniil Medvedev does that just about every time. And it gets back to the nature of, again, There's no one way to skin a cat in tennis from a technical standpoint. And the point he was trying to make resonated with me because you watch Daniel Medvedev, whose forehand is not aesthetically pretty, and yet he's always under the ball. He's always able to elevate that ball, uh, you know, with great height over the net, and that height produces depth that ultimately buys him time to recover and is what makes him such an exceptional defensive counterpuncher. And, you know, again, I thought his on-the-run forehand throughout the course of his week in Rotterdam was particularly exceptional. Now, unfortunately, the burden of recapping an entire event in one podcast, and this is why we made the mini-break podcast, is so I could dive into the specifics, talk about specific breakpoints, specific shots hit by Daniil Medvedev throughout the course of the week. I don't want to do that for every match. And so, again, it becomes a little bit harder to do that on a show like this when we're looking 10,000-foot view of why this week is significant. But he just got his swagger back. And physically, he was everywhere. Case in point, the final, 5-7-6-2-6-2. He knocks out Yannick Sinner. He goes down an early break in that match, gets the break back for 4-3. Ultimately, yes, broken, serving to stay alive in the set. But, you know, from there, 5-7-6-2-6-2. Now, that 5-7 set, in my opinion, had more to do with Yannick Sinner than it did with Neil Medvedev. And I want to get to the Sinner side of things in a second. But how did Medvedev come back in that match? It was turning defense into offense. It was the fact that Yannick Sinner could not maintain 
his aggression could not sustain the physicality required to hit through Daniil Medvedev, even on an indoor hardcourt. And Sinner came out hitting the plus one so aggressively. His first strike, I mean, to the open court, taking it early on the rise, capitalizing on Daniil Medvedev's court positioning by just beating him to the spot, by moving forward, hitting volleys out of the air, and taking that time away from Medvedev. You know, again, there was an eagerness, a willingness to move forward and an efficiency in doing so. Sinner played top five tennis in the first set against Daniil Medvedev. Yannick Sinner's playing top five tennis right now. Okay, there's the take for all of you. I think Yannick Sinner's the fourth best player in the world. Like, we'll get there in a second. Um, But man, it was just a reminder of, okay, but can you sustain that for two and a half hours? And for Sinner, it's his, what, 10th match in, in 11 days, given he won a tournament the week prior. You know, can you sustain that for the two and a half hours necessary it takes to hit through this version of Daniil Medvedev, who then, you know, the first serve started landing a little bit deeper in the box. He gets a little bit more confident with his first strike. I do think he generates better depth, better pace on his first forehand when he hits it aggressively than he used to. Now, he's still not the best at generating pace on his backhand wing, but if you give him anything to work with, I mean, the depth he's able to generate, his ability to change direction, go down the line on you, he just looked like the 2020, you know, 2020, 2021 hardcourt version of Daniil Medvedev. I think that's the highest compliment I can offer him. And you look for Medvedev, who won over two-thirds of his first serve points in every match that he played. He was broken in five matches overall on the week. He was broken a grand total. Well, he was broken five times in his first match against Davidovich Fokina. He was broken just four times in his next four matches you know, wasn't broken in sets two or three against Yannick Sinner. It's just a reminder with the total package of things he brings physically. He also is six foot six and has the ability to crank 125 on the first serve with ease. And he made over 61% of his first serves in every match that he played in Rotterdam, which is what you got to do on an indoor hard court, by the way. But again, it was against Felix. It was how well, it was just a reminder how well he absorbs pace. Felix loves to hit the inside-out forehand. He couldn't do that against Daniil Medvedev because of how well Medvedev, how much depth Medvedev generates on that backhand side, Medvedev's ability to pinpoint and find the Felix backhand and yet not allow Felix to camp on that ad side because he is so willing to hit the forehand on the run cross to the open space and you know redirect with the backhand down the line. He's also the best bad volleyer you'll ever see or the worst good volleyer you'll ever see. Uh, the worst good volleyer because he's a good volleyer. It's just, again, sometimes the technique is less than conventional, but it's just what the doctor ordered for Daniil Medvedev, who fell out of the top 10 for the first time since, I think, early 2019, uh, heading into Rotterdam. And now, you know, gets the title. It's his third since the start of August, but his first at the 500 or higher level since he won the U.S. Open back in 2021. You know, again, it had been a while since he had had, I don't think Vienna's an ATP 500, which he won last year. Maybe it is, but I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm pretty sure it's a 250. Um but he also beat top 10 guys in FAA, who's number nine right now in the rankings. And then Yannick Sinner may not be a top 10 guy in the rankings, but Yannick Sinner is a top 10 guy right now. And yeah, Sinner right now sitting at 12 uh, in the live rankings. Look, why is this the most significant thing of the week? Because big picture, I think Daniil Medvedev is the second best player in the world right now from a week in, week out basis. Like, or at least that's his ceiling right now. I trust, or that's his floor. I trust his floor. Well, See, the Alcaraz thing is so tough, right? Because I say that out loud and I'm thinking, well, if they're both playing their best, 
I probably still have to take Carlos Alcaraz's best over Daniel Medvedev's best right now. Boy, would that be a fun match to watch because of the physicality, the size of Medvedev. Alcaraz loves to hit the inside out forehand and yet a heavy topspin ball into the Medvedev backhand that he can just bunt down on like God, is he going to love hitting that ball all the time? The kick serve somewhat neutralized for Alcaraz. Although then again, Alcaraz will serve in volley certainly to take care of uh, to take advantage of Medvedev's court positioning and then mixing in the drop shots when Medvedev's 16 feet behind the baseline. Then again, you think about the Medvedev serve into that Carlito forehand. As good as Carlito is at breaking serve in the matches he loses, it's because he doesn't put enough returns in play because of how aggressive he is on that return of serve. And it's going to be a little harder to be that aggressive on the return of serve when it's 130 miles per hour, which Medvedev can hit at you. Was that a good minute hypothesizing on the medvedev Alcaraz hypothetical? Why that one, the physicality of that match on a hard court outdoors, like, yeah, sign me up for that tomorrow. Um, No, but... I now think Medvedev would have a shot in that match because, again, we saw him. Those last two sets he played against Sinner, he just broke Sinner's will. Like, he was just everywhere. He was redirecting things. Again, I thought he was stepping up much better on his first forehand as well. Just what the doctor ordered for Daniil Medvedev, who, with his victory back inside the top 10 now, he's sitting at number 10 in the live rankings as of today. But, you know, again, he has a good week in Doha. He can get himself back up to that number 8, number 7 range heading into the Sunshine Swing. And, by the way, we we still have what other I, I forget which Middle East events we're on right now on the ATP side, but we've got that. We've got Acapulco even prior to the start of the Sunshine Swing. So, yeah, I mean, again, if Medvedev, the hard court season is always so valuable to Demil Medvedev, right? Because going into last year's U.S. Open, Djokovic was the best player in the world on hard courts, but Medvedev was the consensus number two, and like. That was no longer the case coming out of this Australian Open, and that's probably the first time we say that out loud. I mean, in my opinion, since Medvedev went on that run that summer of 2019 where he loses to Nadal in the U.S. Open final, in my mind since then, he's been certainly a top three hardcore player in the world, in my opinion, on his best days, clearly the the clear-cut number two. You know, again, he was not during the Australian Open. He was really not throughout the course of last summer. He looked the part in Rotterdam. That's a significant development. I talked last week about how for the first time, Stefano Tsitsipas was in the lead amongst his peers, like that trio, Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, who to me will always be compared uh, to one another because they were the first of the next-gen crew to truly break through at the highest levels. And yet, you know, again, Tsitsipas still probably has the hair of a lead because he's done a Grand Slam finals on multiple surfaces and... You just can't deny what he, how good he looked, even though he loses early here to Sinner uh, in Rotterdam, how good he looked in Australia. But like, yeah, again, it, now it's a toss-up again. I guess that's the compliment is I don't think, I know Zverev's not in the lead, but I can't say definitively Tsitsipas leads Medvedev. I can't say definitively Medvedev leads Tsitsipas. So again, I suppose that's a relevant update to the 10,000-foot view and a big thing to come out of Rotterdam. Again, the return of Daniil Medvedev back up to number four in the ELO ratings as well, according to Tennis Abstract, trailing just Djokovic, Tsitsipas, and Alcaraz. Although those, there are six guys. Djokovic has a big gap on everyone, but Tsitsipas, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, FAA, Honestly, Corder and Ruda, Runa, they're all within 70 points of each other on an ELO rating perspective. And again, that speaks to there's a lot of talented young players right now uh, whose best look very, very good on the ATP Tour. And one of those guys is Yannick Sinner, who, you know, now has done it back-to-back weeks, right? And I always say two weeks in a row, extraordinarily impressive. You go on a run for three weeks in a row, 
it's very, you know, again, I think there's like five guys who have won titles three weeks consecutively over the course of the past decade. And those three week or, you know, two week runs simulated slam, those three week month long runs, those are typically the signature breakthroughs where you're jumping a level, whether it be from outside the top 100, three straight challengers, now you're in the top 100. Three straight good weeks at the 250s, now you're top 50 guy. Three straight good weeks at a Masters plus maybe a 200, a 250 or 500 level success, now you're in the top 25. And for Yannick Sinner, it's making that jump back into the top 10. And you look for Sinner who gets injured week one in Adelaide against Corda. I thought he played top 10 tennis in sets three, four, and five against Stefano Tsitsipas in his round of 16 loss. And it was a fifth consecutive second week for Sinner at the majors. How does he follow up that tough five-set loss to Tsitsipas? He goes to Montpellier, again, racks up more victories against non-top 20 opponents. And you look for Yannick Sinner, 50 and 17 now. He's won 75% of his matches over the course of the past year. That's a top five number in terms of win percentage. You look for him against opponents ranked outside the top 20. He's 45 and 7 with two of those losses, three of them, excuse me, four of them coming to players now currently ranked inside the top 20. So you take those out, 45 and 3 over his last 52 weeks against opponents currently ranked outside the top 20. And, you know, again, if there were Wimbledon quarterfinal points on Yannick Sinner's resume, he would be firmly ensconced inside the ATP top 10 right now. You look at the advanced analytics, Djokovic, the only guy right now who ranks top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Medvedev, the only guy who ranks top 15 alongside of Djokovic in those two categories. So they're the two leaders. Djokovic is top 10 club. Medvedev is top 15 Three guys in the top 20 club. Chilich, who, let's be real, I mean, semifinals at the French Open. He's been really injured, but so the limited matches on his resume, he has been really good. You understand why he's there. He's a statistical outlier. But the two legitimate cases, the other two top 20, Alcaraz, Sinner. And if I told you right now, your four best players in the world are Djokovic, Medvedev, Alcaraz, and Sinner— I think the the argument would be made Tsitsipas has to be on that list. I would accept that argument. And for what it's worth, you look at the stats leaderboard. No, Stefano Tsitsipas is not top 25 in hold percentage, uh, in break percentage. But Stefano Tsitsipas right now currently ranks tied for seventh in hold percentage, tied right there with Maxime Cressy holding a little over 88% of the time. That's elite serving. Yeah, like... I think that makes sense. I think those are the probably your five best players right now. Now, certainly, again, you feel a little biased saying that about Medvedev coming out of Rotterdam, but he's been that consistent, like, and he does have the track record of success. I don't think you can say Kasparud has that big of a track record that you have to elevate him to that category. Obviously, you can't elevate Zverev to that category if you've watched him play at all here, even if he has the track record of success. I also think guys like Berrettini, you know, Fritz, Nori, they're probably, I mean, there's, they're a tier below that. Um, certainly, although credit to Fritz, who we'll get to in a little bit. 15 17 speaks to itself. And again, I know for Yannick Sinner, what the knock against Sinner will be, as I mentioned, his record against opponents ranked outside the top 20. He's 5 and 10 against top 20 opponents, although does get a very, uh, in the last year, although he does get a very good win over Stefano Tsitsipas, 4 and 3 here in Rotterdam. But I mean, again, Five and six over a talent Greek Spore, who's been a top 30 guy this year, who's made a final and a semifinal and, you know, played really good ball. One and three over Stan Wawrinka, three sets over Benjamin Bonzi in round one. But of course, that was his first match 
two days after he had won the title in Montpellier. He immediately bounces back the next day with a 4-3 win over Tsitsipas. Sinner's good at everything, and you saw it in the first set. He's a more willing volleyer than he used to be. He played the exact aggressive brand of tennis needed to be played to get to that, to take that first set over Medvedev. I think the biggest thing for him is physically. He just, he couldn't do it for two and a half hours against Medvedev yet. He's not the specimen. And I mean, he's played plenty of five-set matches, right? The five-setter against Tsitsipas. He has match point against Alcaraz at the U.S. Open in the quarters last year. He's up two sets to love on Djokovic in the Wimbledon quarterfinals last year. He's not quite at the elite, elite level of physicality that would guarantee him a spot forever in the top 10 and in that top five conversation. But why he so, is so unequivocally a tier one prospect and player is because his best level is unequivocally top five. And it's just about sustaining that best level uh, for longer periods of time moving forward. And guess what? If that's the question you're asking about someone who's 21 years old, I'll take all, you know, all the chips are in. I'm all in still. That is not a hot take nor a new take. But again, given the injury issues in week one, nope. I actually think this, I, again, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I would be more shocked if he doesn't finish top 10, he meaning Yannick Sinner, than if he does uh, here in 2023. But, you know, again, the other relevant results, I brought up Talon Greekspoor. Credit to Greekspoor, who continues uh, to be off to a very strong start to his 2023 season. And you look for Greekspoor, who had a miserable, miserable ending to 2022. In fact, Talon Greekspoor overall in 2022, 28-27 on the season. He lost seven of his last eight matches on the year. His one win coming in qualifying over Mackie McDonald in Paris. 11-3 to start the season for Greek sport. Wins the title in India week number one. Third round loss to Tsitsipas at the Australian Open. Oh, well, Tsitsipas was your finalist. You know, he beats Yannick Sinner. Uh, excuse me, beats Zverev, beats Emer before getting knocked out five and six by Sinner in the Rotterdam semifinals. And then today he had three match points before getting knocked out by Andre Rublev, seven, six in the third. So like when your three losses are Rublev, Sinner, and Tsitsipas to start the season, yeah, that's a damn good year. And that's why Greek Spore's up to a new career high of number 40 right now in the rankings. The 26-year-old is playing the best tennis, as a 26-year-old should, of his career. Really good week for him. Good week for Grigor Dimitrov as well. 7-6 in the third win over Demonauer in the quarterfinals. 6-6 six six over Hubi in the round of 16. He just had, you know, I mentioned the 1-2 and two win for Medvedev. Dimitrov had no gas left in the tank for that match. And again, I'm not making excuses. I'm just... Stating the facts, he emptied the he emptied the tank against Demon in that seven six in the third. Emptied the tank, uh, certainly uh, in in the six and six win as well. And yeah, I mean, listen to the the court time. You're not going to beat Alex Demon hour quickly, right? Two hours thirty three minutes. He you know is two hours on court against Hubi as well of high stress, high intensity. You know, only one break of serve for each guy in that Hubi Hercots Dimitrov round of sixteen battle. Tough loss for for both Hubie and Demon, who I do think, again, for each guy, I keep talking about why it's a make-or-break year for Demon, and I never expand on that topic. It's just, what's his weapon? What's his life? He plays everyone really close, but what will he do down the home stretch to make life easy for himself? What's the one thing, other than not missing, you can rely on Alex Demon to do to help himself win points? I think he's a really good volleyer. I think he's really good at improvising. I think he's exceptional on hard courts. But there are a lot of people who are exceptional on hard courts. And again, does he have the weapon to differentiate himself from those others in the biggest moment? The thing he can do to win on his terms, not just hope for the other guy to miss. I know he's still young. He's developing that thing. 
but will it ever be developed to the point where it can be, where there's just again going to be an elite weapon in at his disposal? I'm not ready to answer that question. I still think the answer to that question is no. And again, at a certain point, you just got to say. And being who he is, like if he's the heir apparent to RBA to PCB, where he's always in the mix, but the best guys are probably going to get through him in a tight match. That's a really good player. That's a really good career. We're talking about a guy who's going to be a perennial top twenty-five sort of guy in Alex Diemenauer. Is that the ceiling, though, or is it still higher? That's the question for him. And again, that's a tough three-set loss to a Grigor Dimitrov, who really doesn't have an overwhelming weapon to beat him with, and yet was a little bit more comfortable redirecting, was a little bit more comfortable moving forward than Demon in the closing stretches of the breaker, and then just had a little more pop on the first serve as well to win himself more free points. And then on the Hoobie side of things, you know, again, he beat RBA 7-6 in the third the day before losing to Dimitrov. That was a three-hour match. He then goes two hours with Dimitrov. I actually thought it was fine for Hoobie Hercots. I still have no concerns, and I love the profile physically. It's just, again, finding plans A, B, C, D for him. Uh, you know what A is, excuse me, B, C, D for him moving forward. But, you know, again, good quarter for Felix, Demon. Stan Wawrinka's playing better tennis. He's staying relevant, staying inside the top 100. So, you know, he's the Wiseman right now. He's the... He's the veteran. He's the, uh, well, I guess, you know, Murray Nadal, Djokovic still out there as well. But he's one of the elder statesmen. It's weird to have Stan Wawrinka as one of the elder statesmen in pro tennis yet. That's where we find ourselves in 2023. Nevertheless, that's your action in Rotterdam. Again, shout out to Daniil Medvedev for getting back to the winner's circle. Will I spend that long on every tournament? Let's find out as we move now to the action that happened in Doha. I mean, I'm not going to spend as long on this one. Because it was just the Iga show. And I know Iga received the withdraw victory from Belinda Bencic in the quarterfinals. But Owen won over Danielle Collins. Owen won over Kudermatova. 3-0 and over Jessica Pagula in a match where two of Pagula's three games were won on the return of serve. Like, again, if this is who Iga is going to be as a server, for lack of a better term, and I'm sorry, but, like, the WTA Tour is f***ed. They just are. And I know that's not the most... Uh, that's not the most quantitative or qualitative analysis of Iga's game, but like we've been talking about it for a year and a half now. I I, I think I've made my fondness quite clear uh, uh, for everything that Iga Swiatek can do. Not only does she have an elite backhand, which she can take cross with action down the line with the, she can find the short angles. She has the best sliding backhand I've ever seen in the women's game. You know, not only does when she have her feet set, you never know what she's going to do with her forehand. She can generate so much action, so much topspin on that ball, find the angles, flatten things out down the line. She's a willing volleyer. You know, the serve has action on it as well. She can hit the slider out wide on the deuce side. She can flatten it out, out wide on the add. You know, not only does she do all of those things extraordinarily well, but it's like, yeah, and she, and she's still 21, right? Like, I don't know, guys. You see her getting stronger. You see the first strike getting better this season. It's a limited sample size. She's holding 82.6% of the time. If she's going to hold over 80, 80% of the time, considering we know she's going to be breaking serve, maybe not 50% of the time like she was last year, but I don't know. If she's at 45% for her career, that's still top 10 returners of all time in history and now you know the only two players I've seen who hold over 80% of the time for their career Serena Williams prime Naomi Osaka that's it and I'm saying prime Naomi Osaka when she's as young as she is but the best version of Naomi Osaka you're like that's just it 
she blitzed through everyone. And it's just like not only does she have all of those skill sets, all of those things going for her from a tennis perspective, she's also the best athlete on the court. And in in just – I mean let me, let me rephrase. No, she is the best athlete on the court. And at worst, the player across the net from her is equally freakishly athletic. Like – I know I'm glass half full, and there are negatives. Okay, fine. Hit the serve with elite pace to the right hip, and you're going to generate a shanked return or two out of Iga. Like, yeah, we all see that with the grip. We know that's the game plan. We also know there's like three players on tour. Rabakina, Sabalenka, should have said it in reverse order. Sabalenka, Rabakina, and then, you know, Samsonova and Ostapenko when they have their eyes closed, and they're just swinging freely. Like, those are that's and, and Junction when when she figures it out. Like, those are the five players I've seen who have the elite sort of power tennis and athleticism where on their very, very, very best days, yes, they're able of they're capable of matching Iga's weapons and Iga's level. But like, you know, again, I would have loved to see the Benchic matchup. She had won a, a tournament the week prior. Uh, you know, again, I, she's now like 15 and four overall in the season after her loss today in Dubai. And we'll get there in a second. That was just a schedule loss after the three and a half hour thriller. Benchich played yesterday. Uh, obviously, she was able to get through that match, but uh, you know, against Kostyuk. But you know, today she just ran out of juice in her battle against Mukova. Um, I mean, again, Kudermatova's made like seventy-five semifinals since the start of last season. Jessica Pagula, seventy-five semifinals since the start of last season. Those are the two players you know you're going to have to go through at the end of every tournament. You know Kudermatova is going to be swinging freely, going to be hitting the big serve, going after her first forehand, playing line drive tennis, and yet Iga took it away from her. You know, for Jessica Pagula, changed up her spots on target, was a little bit more aggressive with her first strike, had Pagula push behind the baseline, and then every return's landing within two feet of the baseline. And there's just no easy first strike opportunities, of course. Iga's now followed it up with a 1-1 win over Leila Fernandez, a 1-0 win over Ludmilla Samsonova today in Dubai. Both of those wins are combined two, you know, she played four sets of tennis in under two and a half hours. And I'm pretty sure she's sick right now. Like she has some sort of cold or cough that you can hear it in her post-match press conference. She's back. And I it, again, it wasn't a bad first month. Like, she lost to Pagula, who played lights out 2-2 two two at United Cup. She lost to Rabakina, who played lights out at the Australian Open. That's going to happen to any world number one. Even prime Djokovic, prime Federer, prime Nadal, prime Rafa would lose matches to good players throughout the course of the season. They just would also have their 15-match win streaks or have their standout slams and it's only the month of February, and yet we already see the outlines of an ego win streak emerging. And again, God willing, this week in Dubai, we'll get the Sabalenka Shviantek immovable object means the unstoppable force battle we deserve. Shout out to the Dark Knight. I'll use that analogy till the death. Um, I almost did the impression there. Why? You want to know why I use a knife? Um, I, I think in another life, Batman, the animated series, is a big part of the Gruskin household that's a big part of my childhood um i think i would be an excellent joker like i'm just i'm gonna throw that out there um not that i'm insane in reality well i am insane but not in the way the joker's insane but i think i could do a pretty good impression anyways we'll save that for a different podcast is that enough eager ranting I'll remind all of you, seventh youngest player in WTA history to uh, three slam titles. You look for Iga in her career, again, 21 years old, and yet in her career, 
in tour-level matches, 164 and 48. She's got a 77% win percentage for her career, and she's 21 years old. Like, again, I ask the question, whenever Iga does something like this, what's she going to look like in 2025? What's she going to look like in 2028 when she's 27 years old? Sweet baby Rays. Like, grab the reins. Hold on. I'm not saying there aren't other individual elite talents. We've been dr- – we created the Sabalenka bandwagon here at the Mini Break Podcast. Co-created because David Kane has been on it with me from the get-go. And I don't want to sh- – and as has Jeff Sackman of Tennis Abstract. So I don't want to short them as well. But like, again – I have eyes, and my eyes tell me Iga's best is still better than everyone else's best because not only can she play the elite power tennis, but it's like, okay, but if that's not working, why don't I beat you with my physicality? Why don't I work you around the court to the outer thirds? Actually, I'm going to play line drive tennis and move forward to the net because I can do that too. Like, she's just good. She's really freaking good at this sport, guys. And I don't think that's going to be a revelation to anyone. But, you know, again... Who's the best of the rest? That's the question. And I know earlier today I was talking with Brett Connors in the TC uh, – what's that room called? PCR. I think it's – I know it as PCR1. I don't know what that stands for or what the actual term for the room is. But we were in PCR1 today at the Tennis Channel Studios in Santa Monica. Humble brag. And I was talking to my dear friend Brett Connors. Humble brag. And we were debating who are the Tier 1 players right now in the WTA Tour. Iga, duh, Sabalenka. Now she, that she's won the slam, she's won 26 of the 28 sets that she's played this season, 13-0 and 0 to start the year. We knew this was her. Hey, we've been talking. She's tier one. Done. I think Rabakin is tier one. Obviously has the Wimbledon title, so it's an easy sell. But you saw the elite brand of power tennis she's capable of playing. That ceiling is just so clearly as high, if not higher, than anyone else on the WTA Tour. The as high being the other tier one players, Iga and Sapolenka. So she goes in there. Our consensus, Brett Connors and I, was that there are three and a half. And that you can't call Jessica Pagula a tier one player because she, you know, the big titles just aren't there. Like, yes, she ends up winning Guadalajara too. Yes, she, you know, gets to the final of Madrid. She makes quarterfinals at, she's now the first American to make five consecutive quarterfinals at 1,000 level hardcore events on the WTA tour. You know, she, she beats everyone she's supposed to beat, but... You again, still struggles from time to time against the big guns. You look for 9 and 12 against the top 20, 4 and 10 against the top 10. Now, in that 4 and 10 record, four losses are to Iga. You know, two losses are to Sabalenka. Two losses are to Jabir. That's the best of the best. And unless you're the best of the best, you're not going to beat Jessica Pagula. The thing is, though, if you are the best of the best, you're going to have to beat Pagula to get to where you want to go. But very frequently, you know, again— Tier 1 entry means can you beat Jessica Pagula? And to me, that means that that's the definition of you are the start of tier number two. But again, her best tennis is still good enough where she and she's just in the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals of every big event now for 15 months consecutively. Half of a, She gets the half mark, the half bump to tier number one. And again, for her to make the finals last week in Doha, really good three-set win over Maria Sakari uh, in the semifinals. Good. It's just listen to this path. Ostapenko first match, Haddad Maya quarterfinals, Sakari semifinals, three top 20 opponents, and she hadn't even reached the finals yet, where again, Iga gets the better of her. Um, look, it, that had more to do with Iga than it did Pagula. Credit to Jessica Pagula. Big result, uh, again, just to continue to solidify herself further in Scans 
her place inside that top five. Uh, Pagula currently sitting at number three in the world. And again, I know Rabakina, I said, is a tier one player. Had there been Wimbledon points, she might even be three in the world right now. Uh, I'm doing the math, plus 2,000. She would not be three in the world. She would be number four in the world. That's why, I, again, like Pagula, it's a half. It's the half. She doesn't have the massive title, but she's always in the mix. That's why, you know, again, you got to give her a shout out. So well rounded, as high of a floor as you're going to see match in, match out of anyone not named Iga on the WTA tour. Another semifinal for Kudermatova, who over her last 52 weeks now, 40 and 20, she's smack dab qualifying for the two-thirds rule, which, by the way, makes sense because over this stretch, she's made 13 different quarterfinals, seven different semi, excuse me, yes, yeah, seven different semifinals, though sadly she's one in six in those seven different semifinals. She's elevated herself to tier two, which again, for the 25-year-old who continues to be a top 10 server on the WTA tour, you know what you're going to get out of Kudermatova. Look, it's a tough loss for Maria Sakari, who again, it feels like has firmly ensconced herself mid to bottom tier two on the worst weeks, maybe high end of tier three. Now, you know, everyone keeps pointing to she's only won the one title, which was in Rabat. She lost four different finals last year. St. Petersburg, Indian Wells, Parma, Guadalajara, the tough three set loss to Pagula. Here it was a good week, though. She gets a 7-6 in the third win over Garcia the day before, you know, then plays two hours and goes three sets with Pagula. You could just tell she didn't quite have the legs in the third, but wins over Chin Wen. Alexandrova and Garcia is is no week, is not a slouch week. That's an exceptional week for Sakari. Even if she loses first round one and two to Carolina Pliska, uh, in Dubai, uh, stock up on Maria Sakari, I would say, uh, coming out of Doha. And then, you know, again, a quarterfinalist, Haddad Maya, Garcia, Goff, Bencic. It was a jam-packed draw in Doha, and that wasn't even the 1,000-level event, right? That's this week in Dubai where we really get rocking and rolling. Where, And again, I'll get back to that uh, event in a moment, but... Those are my biggest takeaways uh, from Doha. Again, we got a lot of meat on the bone. Well, let's just get to Dubai now, I suppose, and we'll get to Delray in a second. But, you know, that's the best part about this Middle East stretch is you just get three really good weeks of tennis. Week one, it was Benchich. Week two, it's Iga. Who's going to be in week three? Well, watching the early rounds unfold, as I've been fortunate enough to do on my capacity, again, broadcasting for Tennis Channel's T2 Network. Iga's off and running once again, and I know Iga got another withdrawal, sadly, uh, as Iga will now advance to, uh, what was it, the semifinals. Carolina Pliska forced to withdraw with illness, but, I mean, listen to these quarterfinal matchups. Sabalenka, Krejcikova, each of us won a slam title. Pagula, who's been in the mix for everything. She's taken on a rising Carolina Mukova, who is like two years removed from multiple slam quarterfinals and a semifinal in a single season. Coco Golfers, Madison Keys, two perennial round of 16 quarterfinals players, top 10, uh, I mean top 15 for Keys because it's been a little less consistent, but you know their ceiling for each of them is top 10 player. And then, you know, again, the winner of that face is Iga. Like, this is what the WTA delivers week in, week out. And this is why I do feel more comfortable talking about Tier 1 is because we get to see a lot of these players compete against one another week after week. And, you know, again, watching... Sabalenka face Ostapenko. Oh my God. Like, Ostapenko played the best tennis in the first set. Every return she hit, her backhand bludgeoned down the line. There was nothing Arena Sabalenka could do until she could. 
until she turned on the Jets, until she played that elite brand of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club tennis combined with her first serve, which just gives her a significant structural advantage over Nostapenko, who, as well as she strikes the ball from the ground, the serve just continues to hang, especially that second serve. Sabalenka looked like someone who is in the running to be the best player in the world in her victory over Ostapenko. Three-set win there to get her event started. Well, actually, she got it started with an 0-1 win over Lauren Davis. But, like, the Benchich-Kostyuk match yesterday, which we talked about a little bit with Nate. Oh, my God, was that exceptional. You know, Mukova played really good tennis to jump on Benchich 6-1 in the first set. And then when Benchich showed a little fight, it was a 1-4 win. Nope. Uh, Carolina Mukova ultimately gets through. Krachikova 3-2 and two over Kvitova between, you know, she's now gotten wins over Kvitova, Kasikina, and Begu, all just to get to the quarterfinal matchup with Sabalenka. She looks more and more like uh, her 2022 version, pre-injury and 2021 version of herself and back up to number 30 in the world with her run here this week. So yeah, she should be seated at the slams. She will be moving forward. And then you have Madison Keys, 2-1 and one over Azarenka. Five and four over Garcia. One and one over Paulini at this event. She sustained the level we saw from her in Australia. It's just elite plus one power tennis. I mean, she's been broken twice in three matches. She's made over 60% of her first serves in all three matches. She's won over 55% of her second serve points in all three matches. She's just in control. She's in command. She's on her terms. That's why she, you know, she's got to win a slam to earn men membership into Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, but she's had privileges at the club to golf, to use the workout facilities. If she wants to hang out at the pool in the summer, that's fine. Although we will ask her to pay a guest fee if she brings Bjorn for Tangelo. That was a joke because Bjorn's her dear friend here at Cracked Rackets. You know, again, she's capable of playing elite first strike tennis, and we've seen that from her this week in Dubai. And, you know, again, she lost three sets to Azarenka in Australia. After an undefeated run at United Cup, you look for her overall to start the season. I think the best note is how many matches she's now played. She's up to 12 already through these first two months, and she's 10-2. and two. Overall, you look for Madison Keys with this success now. Keys back up to number 19 in the world. Yeah, when she plays this level of power tennis, she absolutely should be in the top 20, top 15 conversation. And, you know, I mentioned all the time there are 40 top 20 players in the world right now. I think that list is narrowed down to 28. And I still think Keyes is a part of that list. So credit to Madison Keyes. She's played some really good ball here this week. And then how about Coco Goff? Analytically, Coco Goff's turned into quite the returner. She's actually ranked higher on the return of serve where she's 16th than the serve itself where she's 22nd. Goff, one of just uh, eight players right now to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. The list on the women's side. Shviantek, top 10. Pagula, 15, Halep, Jabur, 20, and then Vekic, Boshkova, Alexandrova, and Goff, the top 25 club. Goff beats who she's supposed to beat at this point, and you look for Coco Goff here again this week in Dubai uh, off to a riveting and racing start. Goff uh, unfortunately earns the withdrawal victory after Rabakina is forced to bow out of the event, but Goff, the 0-4 victory over Asastovich, who just could not hurt her last night. I mean, look. Coco Goff now, over the course of her last 52 weeks, 41-20 and 20 overall. Two-thirds rule, baby, and she does it at the highest level caliber events. That's how you sustain a top 10 ranking. She's also top 10 in both singles and doubles right now, 18 years old. I don't think we appreciate how special that is enough, so I'm going to try to mention that more frequently moving forward. Uh, again, 
right now, and there is clearly a little bit of a virus going around the grounds in Dubai. We've seen a couple of withdrawals from a couple of different people, uh, unfortunately. But for what it's worth right now, Iga, 56.2% chance of winning the event. Then you've got Sabalenka, 18-4, Pagula, 14-9, a dip after that. But I mean, come on now. That's an exceptional draw, and we'll get back to breaking all of that down in specific depth uh, on tomorrow's show, of course. Uh, The other thing I wanted to mention before I go here today, how about Taylor Fritz in Delray Beach? I mean, that's a really good run for Fritz. He, you know, 4-3 and over Gomez, then... Six and four over Manorino, three and six over Mackey, six love, five, seven, six, two over Miamir Kesmenovic in the end. You look for Taylor Fritz now. He's won five titles since the start of last season. He's five and oh, excuse me, United Cup. So four titles since the start of last season. He's four and oh in those four finals as well. And, you know, again, Fritz isn't top 25 club, but if you make it a top 26 club, he becomes the ninth guy who ranks top 26 in both hold and break percentage. And he's actually up to number seven, excuse me, up to number seven in the rankings, up to number five in the live rankings, though, right now. That would be a career high for Fritz following this Delray run. And I mean, again, 50 and 20 is Fritz over his last 52 weeks against opponents ranked outside the top 20, 40 and 13 overall. And one of those losses is to Ebing Wu. So we should call it 40 and 12 overall, as we know what Ebing is capable of. No, I mean, he just continues to move better and better. He's more willing to be a volleyer, even if the the shots themselves aren't always improved. And it's just the consistent winning. It's, it's the mentality. Taylor Fritz believes he's the best player in the world. And that belief shines through in his willingness to go big down the line in the biggest moments and his ability to find the biggest serves in the 30 all spots or, dare I say, the 15-30 spots where he's most vulnerable in his service games. You know, no one else in this draw had a weapon to hurt him with. And it was unfortunate when number two seed Tommy Paul went out two and two to redo Elbot in the quarterfinals because, you know, you feel like physically and mentally Tommy would have been the sort of opponent in this draw who maybe gives uh, outside of Shapovalov who lost to Michael Moe, seven five three six six three, and we can get to his continued struggles. He is in that Demon Hour, Hatchinov. I really think the list is Demonauer, Hatchinov, Shapovalov. Those are the three players who 2023 is a make-or-break year for me in terms of how I assess their ceilings, floors moving forward. And that's a, you know, again, it's a testament to Michael Moe, who I said at the start of the year would consolidate his spot in the top 100. Michael Moe right now, 25 years old, sitting at a career high of number 82, just a nightmare physically. You have to earn it every time you step on the court against Michael Moe, and then he'll crank a 120 mile per hour serve by you as well. You know, again... I know it's some scattered thoughts there. Fritz was clearly the best player in the field. Shout out to Miamir Kesmenovic, who gets a much-needed final, his first final since the 2020 season. And, you know, with that result, he's up to number 30 in the rankings, three off his career high of 27, which he hit earlier this season. He's got a bunch of points still to defend from his early year success from last year. You know, again, shout out to Taylor Fritz. Shout out to Miamir Kesmenovic. Shout out to the American men in general. As you see Mackie McDonald into uh, an ATP semifinal last week. You look for Mackie now overall in his career. Mackie McDonald, uh, I believe, let's see, how many semifinals has he made at the ATP tour level? You look for the former NCAA singles champion for the UCLA Bruins. Mackie McDonald in his career now, four total ATP semifinals. 
you know, two of them since the start of October last year. He made the semis in Naples. Now another semi here in Delray Beach. That's how you get yourself up to a new career high, which he currently sits at number 59, uh, 49, excuse me, in the rankings, new career high for Mackie McDonald. And, you know, look, there are, if you included, we'll go right now live rankings. We'll go from the uh, from the top. Taylor Fritz, five. Uh, let's see who else. Francis Tiafo 15. Tommy Paul, 23. Sebi Corda, 26. Max Cressy, 35. John Isner, 37. Ben Shelton, 40. J.J. Will, 43. Jensen Brooksby, 44. Nakashima, 45. It's 10 players that are Americans inside the top 50 of the live rankings. Of course, Mackey was top 50 as of now, though he dropped a little in the live rankings. But, you know, again, Mackey would have made it 11 top 50 Americans, more than 20%. Of the ATP top 50 is American. That hasn't happened since the 1990s. And, you know, you want to throw Marcos Giron in there. Now you've got 12 top 70 Americans. We keep talking about the embarrassment of riches. They're all young. Like, all of them except for Giron. Because Giron's 30 now, right? Marcos Giron currently, oh, 29 years old. Thank God he's not 30 yet. Everyone but Isner's under 30. Come on now. Everyone but Garone and Isner were born 1995 or later. Um, don't you dare say Mackie McDonald's old because he's six months older than me. So you shut your mouth if you think Mackie McDonald's old right now. Um, yeah, they're all 27. You know, again, I, I said there are 12 in the top 70. 10 of the 12 were born 1995 or later. Nine of the 12 were born, I think, 98 or later. Like, oh, no, I think, no, no, no. Cressy's at 97. So nine of the 12 were born 97 or later. I mean, but again, that means in twenty, you know, again in twenty thirty, Mackey's the oldest of the bunch at thirty five. But even then, the majority of them are still in their early thirties. And if we've seen anything about the tennis universe, is that you can continue to play good tennis well into your thirties. This is the best group of American men's tennis ki- uh, players, kids, excuse me, players we've had of my lifetime. It's the deepest group. It's the most talented group. Obviously, Delray Beach is an event on American soil that is always been prone to successful runs and you just see a lot of Americans in the draw but I mean come on you had five quarterfinalists at this event Mo, Mackie, Marcos, Tommy, Taylor all Americans and, you know again and Mackie and Marcos went the collegiate path both NCAA singles champion for UCLA do you know there was a team I longtime listeners will know this because I mention it every time but there was a team that had Marcos Giron and Mackie McDonald Neither of them played one singles. Marcos played two. Mackie played three. That team, you know, Carousel was the five singles player on that team, another top 400 player. And that team lost in the NCAA semifinals. I'll never understand that. That to me, you know, again, death taxes and me bringing that up. That's just, those are the things that you can guarantee uh, here at Cracked Rackets. But again, with all that, I suppose that is the assortment of takes I wanted to offer to all of you listeners here on today's show. Again, uh, still plenty of things for us to discuss. You'll notice I didn't mention Carlos Alcaraz's run to the Buenos Aires title, and we didn't really get into many of the results we've seen this week here on the ATP and WTA tours. But Rest assured, that's what the rest of the week is for, and I will be joined later today for mini break number two by David Gertler to talk all things South American ATP clay court swing. I also, of course, will get back to the grind over these next two days. We'll run through the five tour-level events we have, what you can expect, what should be another fun championship weekend in the pro tennis world. But 
With all that in mind, that'll do it for today's show. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout-out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all later today. Thanks, everyone.